First of all, say uh, thank you for all of you being here because uh, your singing together this morning was uh, a joy for us, a delight to have so many voices in here singing this morning. So thank you, uh, if, if in any part, thank you for that. But uh, I want to, we have the distinct privilege of being here today and coming together to give thanks and to magnify and adore the Lord Jesus Christ on a day like no other days. It's a a unique day in that it is Christmas Day, a day in which people all over the world are gathering together as families and friends to celebrate the birth of the Messiah that was promised long ago by the prophets in the Old Testament. It's not necessarily the actual birthday of Jesus, but it's a day that is set aside nonetheless throughout the year that we can pause and we can take time and give thanks to God for the provision of His Son. To be sure, there's, most people are simply just celebrating to celebrate for the sake of celebrating. They, they're not really giving any sort of acknowledgement to this precious gift which God has given to us. And even our own government and most businesses are closed down today, acknowledging its significance and allowing people to be together and to be with their families. But it's also the Lord's Day. This is a day in which the body of Christ normally comes together corporately to extol and exalt and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. All over the world, in every country and every culture, Sunday has always been a sacred day in the life of believers, where they would gather together in community to honor and worship and give thanks to God. It doesn't matter where you go in this world. It could be Myanmar, Haiti, Uzbekistan, Peru, China. Believers all set this day apart among all other days to devote it to the worship of Christ our Savior. And some at even great risk to their physical lives. But the Lord's Day is a day in which believers can gather together so that we can stimulate one another in love and good works. It's a day in which we can congregate together so that we can encourage one another and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near, as Hebrews 10.25 tells us. It's a day in which the body can come together so that if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it because we are Christ's body, individually members of it, as 1 Corinthians 12 tells us. And it's a day which with the scriptures tell us that we should not forsake in the assembling of ourselves so that we can spur one another on and upward and onward to the call of Christ Jesus. The Christian life was meant to be lived with your individual commitment to Jesus Christ, but it's also meant to be lived in a mutual commitment to one another in the life of the church. And part of that commitment is to both, really, is by gathering together regularly on the Lord's Day to proclaim His gospel, to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ, to advance His kingdom, and to live out the one another so that we might have unity within our diversity, which ultimately brings glory to Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, with this being such a unique day, I hope that you'll grant me the liberty this morning to bring you a message from another text that might draw your heart and draw your mind upward in praise and adoration to God. I want to take you to some, what some people have considered to be the Mount Everest of Bible verses, a sparkling diamond that stands out as being unique among all the jewels that sacred scripture has to offer 
And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. And specifically, I want you to turn to John chapter 3 and look at verse 16 with me, if you will. Now, if we were going to sit down with a group of five or ten people and have them compile some of the greatest verses and some of the greatest passages in all of the Bible, there is no doubt in my mind that this verse would surface to the top. This is a, a verse in which we teach our children to memorize. We see it on poster boards at sporting events in the grandstands. We see it spray painted on the sides of walls and train cars as they drive on down. You know, We see it uh, all over the place we look. And if you ever have the privilege of going to an In-N-Out burger, lift up your cup and look on the bottom and you'll see this verse on the bottom of your cup. This verse is also typically the first verse that Bible translators will translate in order to bring God's Word to an unreached people all over the world. And so I want us to work through this verse this morning and consider the powerful truths that are here and hopefully take something which may be familiar to you in elementary and dig a little deeper down into it to see the treasure trove that is here in just these 25 words. So if you're there with me this morning in John chapter 3, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's sufficient and inerrant word. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us to take these words which are so seemingly familiar to us and once again help us to be astonished and delighted by them, to hear them like we heard them the very first time we ever did. Let these words drive our worship of you. Let us help this to keep us yearning for more and more of you. Let these words give us hope and fill us with amazement that you would send your Son and redeem us by his precious blood. Father, may these words once again nourish our souls. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, it was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, who preached so much that his entire life's work filled 63 volumes of books, a, a work that encompasses around 25 million words, and it stands today as the single largest set of books by a single author in the entire history of Christianity. And he once said of this particular verse, he said, quote, John 3.16 might be put into the forefront of all my volumes of discourses as the sole topic of my life's ministry. It was the commentator William Hendrickson who has labeled this verse simply as the golden text. The Puritan pastor, Matthew Henry, asserted of John 3.16, he said, quote, Here we have the marrow and the quintessence of the whole gospel. And it was none other than Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, who said of this verse, Here is the Bible in miniature. 
more books have been written, more sermons have been preached, and much more has been said about this particular verse that I believe that it would not be too difficult to fill a small library if we were to compile everything ever written and said about John 3.16. And the reason for that is because it is in this one verse that we have a compendium of truth. That is to say, we have condensed down for us the saving purpose and plan of God and the path of salvation here in this one verse. In other words, what we have here is the gospel in a nutshell. And so as I looked forward to this day and I saw that it was Christmas Day following on the Lord's Day, I wanted to break away from our time in Luke here and bring you afresh a very simple but a very amazing gospel that is found here in John 3.16. It's no exaggeration to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one great essential message of the Christian faith. There is nothing more important There is nothing more beneficial, there is nothing more hopeful to us, and there is nothing more necessary to the magnification and the glorification and the exaltation to the glory of God than other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you think of anything more worthy of your time? Can you think of anything more precious to you right now than knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news? Is there anything of greater value in your life than knowing the saving work of Jesus Christ for your sins? I trust today that as you hear the gospel of Christ once again, or if you're hearing it for the very first time, you'll see the excellencies of His person and the unsurpassing love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Because the gospel found here in this text most certainly is Christianity 101. But it is also Christianity 201 and 301 and 401 and so on and so on because we need to preach this to ourselves every single day. We need to constantly remind ourselves of the great things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we need to constantly remind ourselves that we are children of God. We are joint heirs with Christ and we have a hope in heaven because of the greatness of our Savior. In order to lift our minds and lift our hearts up and above all the troubles and all the cares and all the disappointments that this life has to offer. And so as we come to our text this morning, we need to first understand the context of where this verse falls. A text without a context is a pretext. But if we were to go to the beginning of John chapter 3, we would see Jesus speaking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who came to him by night. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in no uncertain terms that he must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus needed to be made new by the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus, he needed a spiritual heart transplant. In theological terms, what Nicodemus needed was regeneration. And so Jesus tells him, you must be born again. But Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, he's confused by this. And he asks, well, how can a man be born when he is old? And, And how can these things be? He's confused. He doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about spiritual things rather than earthly things. But Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus that what he ultimately needs comes from heaven above. He doesn't need moral improvement. 
He doesn't need a better ethical standard to live by. But what he needs for salvation is to look upon the crucified Christ in faith to be forgiven and live. And so Jesus uses an Old Testament illustration to make his point. He, he tells him that just as Moses made a bronze serpent and he, and he put it on a pole and he lifted it up so that anyone that was bitten by a snake in the wilderness, they would come and they would look upon this pole and they would live. So too, Jesus is telling him that he's going to be lifted up to bear our sins on the cross and we must look up upon him and live. And the point in both cases is that God is going to provide the provision for which we will look upon and live. God would provide the remedy. And the cure for sin's deadly bite will be to look in faith alone to the crucified Christ. And so Jesus answers Nicodemus' question about how these things could be. He gives him the cause of the new birth, and that is because of the sacrifice of the Son of God. There's going to be a substitute. We deserve death for our sins and transgressions, but Christ died in our place. The wrath we deserve, Christ will bear upon Himself. The punishment we deserve, He will, with the joy set before Him, endure the cross for our sake. His stripes will heal us. Our iniquities He will bear. And you and I gain all the benefits and all of the blessings of that by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Can you think of anything greater that you can receive today than that? Could you conceive of anything better that God could give you than the infinite blessedness and infinite satisfaction for eternity through faith in Jesus Christ? But as we come to verse 16, we see Jesus answer the why. Why must Nicodemus believe in the Son of God as the only key to the entrance of God's kingdom? What's the reason for these? That's what John 3.16 does for Nicodemus and for us. Notice, first of all with me, that it says, For God so loved the world. Notice that the first cause of your salvation and mine begins with God. For God so loved. It wasn't as if there was anything good in us to draw God's eyes towards us and cause him to be attracted to us. It wasn't as if you or I were on this moral high road and we weren't that bad and God owed us that salvation. But on the contrary, you and I, we were swimming in an ocean of sin and we were shaking our fists at God. We didn't acknowledge him and we did not give him thanks. We were shaking our fists at Him. We were spitting on doing anything and everything that we could to displease God. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, paints a pretty bleak picture, but accurately, of all of us before coming to Christ. When it says, For also once were, we were also once so foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. God didn't owe it to you. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly in Christ Jesus our Savior. Romans 5.8 tells us, But God demonstrated His own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And yet, in spite of all of that, God's love for us is free, spontaneous, and uncaused. And it's only when you truly see yourself as you are that you will ever begin to see the magnitude and the immensity of the love of God for you. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because He first loved us. He loved us even before you had an ounce of love in your bones for Him. Our love for God, it's only really like a reciprocal love, right? It's only something that we give back in return. Your love for God never ever originated in yourself, but it originated in God. God's love was not motivated by a deficiency of God. It wasn't something that He was lacking, that He needed it. The love that He gave was of His own sovereign good pleasure. And it's a love that is part of His essential nature. There are, there are three things that Scriptures teach us about the nature of God, right? They're very declarative statements. The first one is that God is spirit in John 4.24 meaning that he has no visible substance. He's not tangible, right? God is light, and 1 John 1.5 is the other one, meaning that he is the sum of all excellencies. And in him there is no darkness, no evil, and no sin at all. And the third one we find is that God is love in 1 John 4.8, meaning it is part of his nature. It's who he is. It's not that he's loving as a verb, which he does, but it's also that he is love as a noun. It's not just an attribute, but it defines his nature. He defines love. And notice that it doesn't say, for God loved the world, but it has that little word, so. He so Love the world. There's an adverb there that emphasizes and shows the greatness and the extent of God's love. He so loved the world. It's a love that's unmatched and it's unparalleled. It's a love which the world has never known and never seen because it comes from the very heart of God Himself. All other loves that you will ever know or ever experience will pale in comparison to the love that originates out of God. From what I've heard, even the love that a grandfather or a grandmother may have for their grandchildren, it's going to be a drop in the bucket compared to the ocean of love that God has for us. But notice the object of God's love. It says, for God so loved the world, cosmos in the Greek. And it simply means the sphere of humanity. Now, there's a few Reformed commentators out there that try to push this into some sort of corner to mean that this is just the elect only, some men that I I love and I benefit from greatly. But even John Calvinist, who was a Calvinist before Calvinism was cool, he said of this verse, he said, quote, Two points are distinctly stated to us, namely that faith in Christ brings life to all and that Christ brought life because the Father loves the human race and wishes that none should perish, end quote. And so for others to try to push the love of God into some sort of box and say, here in this verse, it must mean the elect of God only, and it's not really being faithful to the text and the context. Because the love of God for the world that Jesus is talking about, this is a non-specific term for humanity. We have to remember that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here. 
Nicodemus is not just your run-of-the-mill uh, Jew, but he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party. And he's up there in power and clout and authority. And his name actually probably means, originating from the Hebrew, means to separate. And so he's got this very thin, this very razor-thin view of what God's love is possibly supposed to look like. But it's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, he's saying, look, Nicodemus, the love of God, it's going to open like a, a floodgate to the Gentiles through me. The love of God that he has for Israel is going to be like, it's going to come crashing down like a tidal wave, but it is going to splash out like a tsunami to the rest of the world through me. It says Jesus is not necessarily emphasizing the magnitude and the greatness of the world here, but it's the magnitude and the greatness of God's love. The greatness isn't found in the world, but the greatness is in God's love. God didn't love because of the world but he loved in spite of it. God's love is is bigger than you think. It's breadth, it's length, it's height, it's depth. It's even going to surpass knowledge as Ephesians 3 talks about it. Who can measure it or set its boundaries? But notice how this love, this love of God is not a sentimental love. This love is a sacrificial love. It's a love that does something. It's a love that takes action. It says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The love of God expressed itself in its highest and its noblest of gifts, the gift of His own precious Son, the Son with whom the Father loves and is the object of His affections. And the Old Testament tells us in various ways and various means that this would be so. This gift would be from the seed of a woman in Genesis 3.15. Abraham asserts that God would provide the lamb in Genesis 22.8. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 7.4, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Psalm 2.7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten you. God would express His love in the greatest ways imaginable to man and give His very own dear Son as a gift to the world. And even if we were to keep going on through the Gospel of John, which I hope that we can do someday, that God gives us the time to do so, but one of the things that you will see is Jesus repeat this phrase that He was sent by the Father. Within the Trinitarian Godhead, the Father gave the Son the greatest of commissions. To go into the world, to be born of a woman and to be born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the curse of the law. He would send him to be the savior of the world that he might give himself up for us and achieve for us what we could not do in our own strength. Bearing our sins, healing our wounds, bearing our iniquities, taking our scourging, being pierced for our transgressions, and pouring Himself out to death on a cross in your place. But the the sending of the Son, it came out of the very heart of love from God to do so. It was the magnitude of the love of of God the Father for this world that He would give His only begotten Son. Because those who love much, they give much. And, and husbands and wives, this practically applies to your lives as well. He who loves much, 
gives much. And we could... And we could almost measure the extent of one's love by the cost and the sacrifice that one is willing to give. And a love that gives everything and spares or withholds nothing is the greatest of loves that we could ever possibly attempt to measure. God did not hold back. In fact, it pleased God to do so. He did it out of his own divine pleasure. He was more than willing to send his son and he was delighted to do so. And not only that, not only was it a costly love, but this love, it's a secure love. Romans 8, 31 and 36 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will we not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And that's not all. Paul goes on, he says, in verses 38 and 39, he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, ladies and gentlemen, nothing, nothing, will separate you from the love of God that He has so graciously and lavishly bestowed on you through the gift of His Son. Do you know that kind of love this morning? Do you know that God loves you to such an extent that He would give you His dear, precious, beloved Son for you? Do you know that? I don't think there's any of us here going through famine, nakedness, or sword, but you may be going through some persecution or distress in whatever ways and whatever means, but know this, God's love for you is secure. God's love for you is costly, and God's love will never depart from you. Treasure this into your being. Grab hold of this, cling to this, this day and every other day from here on, that God loves you with an immeasurable, everlasting love. Jeremiah Burroughs said of this love, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men perish eternally, He would send His Son to take our nature upon and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows His love. It pleased the Father to break His Son and to pour out His blood. Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. Oh, what powerful, mighty, drawing, efficacious meditation this should be to us. When you're tempted to despair through the week and you're tempted to lose hope, Look to the love that God the Father has given you in Jesus Christ. Look away and look up to Christ and live and see the love and the depth that He is willing to go for you. Do you know that love this morning? 
Do you know that love this morning? But it says it also that it's God's only begotten son. It's not as if God had a, a couple of sons to choose from and he's looking for a volunteer. He didn't have two or three or four sons to choose from and he's soliciting them say, who's the willing candidate? And even if he did so, it would be an incredible sacrifice nonetheless. But it says that he gave his only begotten son. This son was a perfect son. This son was a sinless son. One who is co-equal and co-eternal. In reality, what God did was give one that is equal to himself. Perfectly holy. Equally loving. Equally sovereign. And the word for begotten here. It does not mean there was a time in which Jesus did not exist. This is what people like the Jehovah's Witnesses falsely teach, that Jesus was procreated in the womb of Mary, and he never existed prior to that. But the Greek word for only begotten here is the word monogenes. It's a word that means one of a kind. He's a one of a kind son. He is a unique one with no other to compare. There's no equal. There's no other son with, with whom we could compare this son. We couldn't even say that, that Jesus stands head and shoulders above anyone else because we wouldn't be able to find anyone that could even come in and enter into the room to be able to compare with him. He is God's only unique, incomparable, and precious son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. This is the gospel call. This is the proclamation to the world that salvation is found only in the Son and it should be offered to all without hesitation or reservation or discrimination. The gospel should be proclaimed to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It should be taken to the ends of the earth. The word whoever here in the text, it's a very highly technical Greek word. And it means whoever. It means, in all honesty, it's an extraordinary word. Whoever means all who will hear his voice. Anyone who will listen and live. Anyone. Anyone and everyone who is still alive is a potential candidate for receiving the forgiveness and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Even if you were hanging on a cross and you were on the doorsteps of death right beside Jesus, you would be the whosoever that this verse is talking about. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're Jew or Gentile, male or female. It doesn't matter how deep and how dark your sin is. It doesn't matter how many crimes you've committed in your life. It doesn't matter whatever you've done in your life and how ashamed you are of it. There is no sin too deep, too dark, and too ugly that the grace of God cannot overcome. There is no prison deep enough in which and dark enough that the penetrating light of the gospel can't penetrate. It, it's not going to not make it. And listen, it is absolutely not our job to walk around and determine who is the elect of God. It's not our job to determine beforehand who God is going to save and who God is not. Our job is to simply proclaim the gospel and let God sort out the rest. Our job is to simply cast that gospel seed out there and watch God cause the growth. That's why Jesus was talking about the wind to Nicodemus back in verse 8. 
You don't know where the wind is going to blow, and you can't control it in any measure, but you can see its effects. And so it is with salvation from God. We don't control who's going to be in or not. We don't get to control who's going to be the elect or not, but we will definitely see it by the fruit they produce in their lives. We are responsible for the gospel call. God is responsible for the effectual call. It's a win-win situation for us. But it says that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And this means, that is to say, whoever trusts in Jesus Christ, whoever looks away from their own righteousness to look to Christ's righteousness, those who don't look on their own works as the reason that God should look to them and save them, but instead to look to what Christ has already done for them. Whoever, by faith, will put their confidence in Jesus Christ will be saved from the final judgment to come. What an amazing thing that God would make something so simplistic to receive eternal life as only to require belief. Not belief in your donation to the church. Not belief in say this prayer and do this ritual. Not belief in clean up your life. But it is to believe in Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Belief simply means to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Belief means to surrender all that you are to all that He is. Belief means to take up your cross daily and to follow Him. It's it's not talking about just an understanding of who Jesus is intellectually, but it's a dependence upon Jesus spiritually. It's absolutely one thing to look at, at a chair and say, I believe that's a chair. Yep, there's a chair over there. But it is quite another thing to walk over to that chair and sit down on it and put all of your weight upon it and let it hold you up. It's one thing to look at an elevator and say, you know what, I think I believe in that elevator and I believe it will take you up to the floor you need to go. But it is quite another thing for you to get on that elevator and ride it up. It's only when you put both feet into it that you are going to be able to get where you need to go. And so it is with Jesus Christ. You can't just stand from afar and gaze at Him and say, yes, that's Jesus. You can't just put one foot inside the elevator and expect that you're going to get to where you need to go. But it's only when you put both feet firmly in that Jesus is going to be able to lift you up. Are you all in for Jesus Christ this morning? Are you fully committed to trusting in Him? Are you holding anything back from following Jesus Christ? Look, He's not looking for people to come along and He's going to put on that team jersey and just go and sit on the bench, but He's looking for active players who will put on the jersey and get out on the field. He's looking for you to commit your all in all to Him. He wants every part of you so you can receive every part of Him. Does that describe you this morning? Is that your understanding of your Christian walk? But the word perish here, next in our text, stands as an antithesis to our next words, eternal life. It means far more than physical death or destruction, but it means eternal punishment with unquenchable fire. Very succinctly, it's talking about hell. A place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Matthew 13 puts it, and where the worm does not die. 
But instead of spending eternity of getting what your sin and your rejection of Jesus Christ definitely, rightly deserves, it says that trusting in Him will keep you from perishing. But that's not all. It's like one of those TV commercials. But that's not all. There's more. Not only will you not perish if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only will you escape the judgment to come. Not only will you have all your sins forgiven, whether past, present, or future, but you will gain eternal life. It's like an offer that's too good to be true. But it is true, and it doesn't cost you $19.95. This life will not be the end for you. All of God's blessings... All of God's peace, all of God's joy, all of God's happiness, all of your sins removed, all of your sicknesses healed, all of your sorrows removed, from everlasting to everlasting to everlasting, all of that will be yours for eternity. But even if you were to gain all those things, you will gain the greatest thing that you will ever need, and that is you will gain God. God will be the greatest thing that you will ever receive. All those other things are wonderful. All those great other things are great. All those other things are necessary. But you will gain God. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Nicodemus, beloved of today in 2016, this is our Savior. Are you trusting in Him and Him alone? Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we gather on this day. This is why we celebrate this day on Christmas. We've been given the greatest gift that mankind could ever possibly need, and that is in the person of of Jesus Christ. So come today, let us adore Him. Let us adore Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the provision of Your Son, reconciliation with You, redemption, that you would do such a wonderful and marvelous and miraculous thing as to save us by giving us your very own Son. Lord, let the love that you have for us be just over full. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the precious truths that are here. May we go from here knowing that your love is immeasurable and so vast and so incredible that it drives us onward and upward in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.